think our propensity to cause harm with technology has outpaced our ability to take responsibility for it, and particularly take collective responsibility for it. So that's one component. The other component that I think is really relevant here is the need for us as human beings to have deep meaning-making capacity and intersectionality as, as skill sets. That's Gail Karen Young-White, and this is The Emerging Future. Welcome to the Emerging Future Podcast, everybody. I am your host, Joel DeYoung. It's great to be back with you. And today we get to hear a conversation that I had with Gail Karen Young-White about minding the invisible and working with the mythic and the mundane. But before we get to that, a couple of things if you want to hang out with me in person. Um, I started Crowdsource Choir earlier this year, and it's a monthly drop-in choir in Southeast Seattle, we meet at the Hillman City Collaboratory, and we're reinventing choir for the 21st century without historical baggage and recovering singing as an ancient communal art form that helps us participate in a magnificent whole. Yes. And it's super fun. So come out, sing with me, first Thursdays of the month. The next one is on April 5th. And if you want to come get your hands dirty, and do some forest restoration. We gather on the first and third Saturdays of the month, um, and we hang out in Chiste Green Space, the largest contiguous forest in the Rainier Valley. And that's super fun, too. It's family-friendly. There's food, and you get out in nature in the city, so there's nothing better. But um, those are the two things that I wanted to let you know before we get into this conversation. So a little bit about Gail. Gail Karen Young-White is a technologist, a human rights activist, uh, leadership and adult and organizational development expert, and the former chief talent and culture officer at Wikimedia. So now she often consults senior leaders, CEOs on personal development, organizational culture, and she helps them be able for complexity. So Gail was in the process of becoming a monk when she became an executive, taking on the challenging role of the chief talent and culture officer at Wikimedia, which is a global movement with a mission to bring free educational content to the world. And Wikimedia's most well-known project, Wikipedia, which we all know is the free online encyclopedia that everyone uses all the time, it grew to 100,000 volunteer contributors and 500 million visitors a month while she was in leadership. So this endeavor and essentially the business world became her spiritual practice ground. So Gail says, working with culture is like understanding the role of dark matter in the universe. It's everywhere. It's influential yet impossible to detect with the naked eye. If you want to understand the universe or want to deliver on a mission, you must mind this invisible force. Gail is also the wife of the globally renowned poet David White, who is a master conversationalist. So Gail is well-practiced in the art of conversation, and she really brings um, elegance and humor, heart, 
and soul to this exchange. And this was our first meeting, and I sense we were only able to scratch the surface of Gail's knowledge and spirit. Um, I look forward to more conversations with her for sure. Um, so with that, I give you my conversation with Gail Karen Young-White. Thank you for having me over. You're so welcome. <laughs> it's good to have you over. It's good to meet you. Yeah. Likewise, this is interesting because um, we've never met before. I know. So this is like first meeting. Hey, let's chat and record it. <laughs> I know. Deep dive. I like deep dives. Yeah. Um, and I did invite myself over, so <laughs> I acknowledge that. <laughs> um, but the first thing I want to say is congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations, because you recently were married. I know. Right here, about three weeks ago now. Really intimate, wonderful gathering of friends and family. Three weeks ago in this very room. Yes. Well, um, you can't be in this room with us visually right now, because Jeff didn't make, <laughs> make the boat, our videographer, today. <laughs> But we'll have to come back and do this again because this is a lovely room. It is fantastic, and it would be a great place to do um, it. The sometimes, especially in the summer, when the light just comes through those windows, that chair is a perfect place to settle in with a good book and a hot cup of tea in the morning. Oh my goodness! Yeah, right next to the fireplace. Exactly, and we usually have a fire going in there. If we weren't heading yeah. out today on our honeymoon, there would be a fire going and. Um, one of the things I've had to learn is how to tend the fire because this is the first house I've lived in with a fireplace. Okay. So there's something really lovely about that. So how do you tend to fire? <laughs> it's, the biggest part is just going out in the cold and getting the wood. Right. <laughs> but there is a seasonality to this house. So, um, for instance, uh, David usually sources the wood in the spring and then he has it stacked and so has time to dry over the summer mm -hmm. so that it's ready for the winter. And I just didn't know that. And I think people who live um with the seasonality of places mm -hmm. learn those patterns as a consequence of of carrying them from their heritage or um or settling into them so in a case like this i'm a california girl you know we mm -hmm. don't really have the fireplace on a daily level in winter so that's a, a whole thing and this house and david have a lot of rituals that um, i've been stepping into hmm and part of it's also been getting to know this place and the land and the people. Mm -hmm. Can you share some of those rituals? I think, I mean, seasonality, um, just being attuned to the seasons, there's so many ways to step into that and make it more, mm -hmm. more meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, right now, we're in the winter season, mm -hmm. so you are you're burning the fire. Are there exactly. other things that, that you're doing in your home to mm -hmm. enter into the season? Um. Not thinking of one offhand. I mean, on a daily basis, there's sort of the tea-making ritual that's that's very English mm -hmm. um, and reflects sort of David's English-Irish heritage. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's some of that on the Chinese side, although we tend to make green tea and have it all day. Um, there's a seasonality to where and how we occupy this house. So we mm. try to be home in August, for example, when the island is really beautiful. Uh there was something really cozy about having the um, wedding in the, right between Christmas and New Year's. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really lovely to welcome people to firelight and candlelight and um, sort of be in light and in company 
in one of the darkest times of the year as mm -hmm. the year turns to a new year. And as the, the sun starts to get brighter exactly. in the sky. Exactly. New light. Yeah, and um, David proposed to me on Easter Sunday, so that was a you know another sort of um, actually out by the maple tree that's across the field over there. So um, that's another piece that feels very seasonal, the walks that we start to take in the spring, and there mm -hmm. are cows and there are lambs in the fields nearby, so we see that cycle as well. Mm -hmm. It's a lovely field right there. It really is when a lovely I, field. I pulled in, I, I stopped, and I, I just took a minute to take it all in. We walk up that road a fair amount, you know, because it's just okay. a beautiful walk. Okay. What's what's at the end? Is there an end to it? Or? The, we, the Langley Cemetery is up there. Okay. And so is the Anderson Farmhouse, which is one of the oldest farmhouses on the island, and it's beautiful. Okay. Um, Flying Bear Farms is up there, who our local florist is from uh, Melissa Brown Owens Flying Bear Farms. And so mm -hmm. there's actually quite a bit up there that's really pretty. I actually like walking around in the cemetery. It's lovely. Yeah. Um, how do you like, you're pretty close to Langley town center too. So you can walk in there. Yes. And I do that a fair amount. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and I love, I love when visitors come because I get to show them Langley and see it through their eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, although I haven't lived here so long that it's not still new to me. So I still have a practice of trying to find something new mm -hmm. whenever I, um, walk through town. So, um, the other day I noticed at the back of Moonraker books, all of the, um, flower boxes are built like little bookshelves and I found that just really sweet you know <laughs> or noticing a new sculpture or mm -hmm. um or some different detail that somebody is putting in mm -hmm. I like that posture mm -hmm. like noticing the new mm -hmm. um that seems like something that might be like a through line in in the way that you approach yeah your life yeah uh finding the new can you talk a little bit more about that yeah, I am. Um, I don't. Are you familiar with polarity management by Barry Johnson? No. It's a great. It's a great. Um, it's a great practice, but it's this it's a practice of really consciously holding the um, polarities, the opposites hmm. that are in constant relation and also in tension with one another. Mm -hmm. So, it's and I would say in this case, it's both the new and the old. You know, honoring what's there along with honoring what's emergent. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an ongoing challenge, especially when we have an age of such shifting technology. Yeah. To retain both of those without developing al an allergy to one or the other. Mm -hmm. So I often see keepers of deep wisdom traditions um, having a very ambivalent reaction to technology, especially given how quickly it changes and shifts uh -huh. or immediately tune out when the conversation turns to something like cryptocurrency mm -hmm. or, um, or, or media. And I think that in a season, I think particularly this last year, at least for me, of mm -hmm. both media, um, geopolitical and natural disaster overwhelm, <laughs> big time. <laughs> uh, the um, the easy thing to do is to just shut down a bit, and I mm -hmm. actually think winter is a good time for that because yeah. we are shutting down a bit. Our bodies shut down, the mm -hmm. world shuts down. It's darker days. I tend to go to bed earlier. Yeah. Um, so I have a lot of empathy for the need to shut down and manage one's own nervous system. Mm -hmm. Um, but the equal and opposite need is to also keep opening mm -hmm. and that's a practice too. Mm -hmm. So get off Facebook for a few days and then reemerge again. Right. And so I think that rather than, 
rage quitting Facebook, which I've seen some people do, which for a very understandable reasons, mm-hmm. um, what is it to get more thoughtful and conscious about the way that we engage mm-hmm. with a news cycle that is fundamentally fear-based and very, very, um, uh, conscious about using all of our psychology to engage us in, um, eyes in app, you know, a lot of the metrics for a lot of technology apps is how long are you spending in it? Mm-hmm. I've got a friend named Tristan Harris, who is fantastic. And actually he's a great person for you to have a conversation mm-hmm. with at some point. Tristan is, um, has been featured in the Atlantic, um, and in various other, um, venues for something that he has really taken a position on. Um, his organization is called time well spent. Mm-hmm. And as a, um, a senior engineer at Google, he was really understanding the ways that um, technology actually needs ethicists. Technology needs people who are um, thinking yes. about the ways that they consciously enhance our lives rather than um, create addiction and detriment to mm-hmm. it. And um, it's a we have a lot of assumptions about addiction and about technology. And, um, and there's an assumption that, you know, if we're using technology that we can just turn it off Mm -hmm. and just like if you're drinking, you can just stop drinking, but that's not actually true at the level at which it's actually an addiction because the same psychological mechanisms that, um, are used with slot machines are used in like the slight delays in gratification on those little notification buttons in Facebook, for example. How is that? Is that intentional? It is a bit intentional. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as a technologist and as, um, as somebody who loves working with Silicon Valley engineers, Mm -hmm. you know, in my uh, past history at Wikimedia, um, the creativity and the beauty of people who, who want to build interesting things for people to engage with. There's a real light side to that and there's a real shadow side to that. Mm. So it's a, there's a real light side and like we're building this thing and everybody's using it and um, we're generating revenue from it and we're offering jobs um, and the blindsidedness to the um, way that technology can be used um, not for good is interesting. Like I, I literally heard a very... Um, uh, well-known uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs say that entrepreneurship is inherently good, you know, that it inherently, mm. um, yeah, exactly. I was like, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, not because, um, not because there isn't a lovely innocence about some of the technologists, mm-hmm. but because um, that very blind spot um, creates, I think, a weak spot around, um, the ways that it can be exploited and manipulated. Mm-hmm. Twitter just sent, I think, um, I was reading this yesterday, a notification to users who had retweeted um, or liked uh, tweets that were generated by um, Russian bots, hmm. which is really interesting. Hmm. Now, what would be even more effective, and I'm quoting Tristan on this, is um, if they'd also been able to send it to everybody who'd seen those because it's not just a matter of we treating or like, right? There's so right. much that, that enters the environment mm-hmm. in that space. And uh, one of the areas that I'm interested in is how technology um, can be used for good yes. and um, how it can be 
manipulated. So it's, it's not an accident that when oppressive regimes are um, trying to suppress um, gatherings and revolutionary activities, the first thing they do is, one, they hire hackers to yeah. get into things like WhatsApp, and um, two, they shut down services and control the telecommunications mm-hmm. component of it. China is very, very well known for doing that. Control the message. Control the message. Control the medium more than control the message, mm. um, but certainly control the message. And we think that we're a little bit, I think, in America, um, less susceptible to it, which is an interesting... It's the interesting delusion, I think, of, of, a, of, of, a, of a further delusion of independence. Right. How could that happen to us? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we tend to have that dual mind, too, mm-hmm. um, that's so prevalent, where um, it's related to technology. It's all bad. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I'm shutting down Facebook. Yes. I'm, I'm gone. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to protect myself. And then, you know, a few months later, I'm going to... Yeah. Come crawling back, you know, because this is the way of the world. Exactly. And there are really great things about Facebook. There are. Like, I really enjoy keeping tabs on people that I care about. Exactly. Via the technology. So when we actually get together, we're not spending three hours trying to catch up on what's going on, which wouldn't be a, a, a bad thing either, you know, to, but it's like, I actually know what's going on in your life. Mm-hmm. I uh, also think, in some way, in some way, I also think that um, we also are experiencing more distributed community, and mm-hmm. so, like, I know that my network of um, friends and allies and um, people who are deeply committed to the same causes, values, um, areas of interest I have, for instance, around adult development or mm-hmm. um, leadership or. Um, human rights are fairly far flung. And so my community, while I'm aware of, and this goes back to a polarity piece, wanting to grow the local and the deeply rooted and, and yeah. Langley connected and mm-hmm. and Seattle connected, um, my community is far flung. Mm-hmm. Which makes it interesting when national um, and natural disasters happen because I'm like, oh God, who do I know there? You know, whether it's Australia or New right. Zealand or South America or shootings in Paris, you know, it's, it's like the, the, our circles of concern are wider than what they used to be. Mm-hmm. Our circles of acquaintance are wider than they used to be. And it's part supported by, enabled by technology, but it's also a consequence of, of, um, earlier technologies of airline travel being what it is, mm-hmm. of car culture, of, of, um, also of my consulting life that had me traveling here and there. So there it's layered now. Um, and I know that there are a lot of other people like that who's, um, friends and acquaintances now span distance in a way that technology helps us bridge. Right. My niece um, was just born a couple months ago, and she's so cute. And I love that I can video call my sister and see her. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be a lot harder to live um, a plane flight away if right. I couldn't um, have that technology-enabled mm-hmm. assist. And I've heard that from a lot of people, that having relatives near and far are really supported by technology. Mm-hmm. There's the, You can have that intimacy of relationship because mm-hmm. of the technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting because you're, you're talking about your community being all over the earth. Mm-hmm. Yet there's also this need to be more rooted in your place. Yes, yeah. So 
it's both and. And I think one actually supports the other because impact tends to be local. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a conversation with my father years ago. It's one of the things I work on is women's human rights. And um, my father, he's a phenomenal, lovely human being. He's a doctor. So I think I got um, a lot of the healing legacy from both of my parents who mm-hmm. are doctors. And um, he was just questioning, you know, what is it um, that you think will end as a consequence of um, your work? You know, rape isn't going to end. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Me Too campaign, which is a fascinating thing at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, uh, I call it a little bit of the, the philosophy of the anyways. Um, you don't do it because you think it'll end necessarily. You do it because it's the thing that you would do anyway. Mm-hmm. Um know how else to put that mm-hmm. i think the closest kinship i have to that is like the bodhisattva vow you make the impossible vows mm. um not because you'll get to ever hit the you know ticked off i'm done yeah box on it yeah um but because that's what you do anyway even in the face of um the scale of the challenge the complexity the inordinate complexity yes. of, of of gender and human rights issues um, that are so deeply and inextricably linked to so many other facets of society, technology, um, uh, the way we're formed. But um, there's a piece in there around the impact being local. So I might not be able to stop it for an unknown swath of women, but I can see what a difference it makes in, in these five lives or ten lives. Mm-hmm. And, and that um, that's something that my very human brain and human nervous system can wrap itself around right and 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 grok and and ground Mm -hmm. itself in um so what helps me with the vastness of scale in some sense is um having it be represented and rooted in um specific people and their stories Uh uh-huh because that's what we can actually relate to Mm -hmm. um we can't fall in love with these theories yeah right yeah or concepts mm-hmm. or consciousness or energy mm-hmm. it's it's too big of a thing for us to actually fall in love with or be directly in relationship with mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um but we can fall in love with a person yes and we can relate to the way that um we can relate to our place we can interact with our, our place and our, mm-hmm. and our people mm-hmm. um, is thinking about your work mm-hmm. and um, this conversation as it relates to organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, I, f- I feel like the need is very similar, mm-hmm. you know, to um, focus on the human in the workplace mm-hmm. and, and make it more humane. Yes. Yeah. Um, but also, um, sort of have this, uh, decision to, uh, step into like the unknown, mm-hmm. um, that can't be measured. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and as I was reading through your website, which is beautiful, by the way, I mean, Thank it's, you. it's one page mm-hmm. and there's so much in there. Thank you. And I was like, this is, this is one page. This is, we could have, we could talk about this for days. <laughs> um, but I wonder what your conversations look like when you're talking to 
uh, CEOs of, of companies in that regard? The first thing I go with, um, so I think there's always a foreground conversation and a background conversation, right? The foreground mm-hmm. conversation is about meeting someone wherever they are with whatever presenting um, challenge, mm-hmm. um, usually complexity-related challenge, people-related challenge, mm-hmm. um, execution-related challenges on the table. And the background conversation are the um, beliefs, theories, values, assumptions mm-hmm. that I hold around um that i I just carry Mm -hmm. and so um that's one internal tension that i'm constantly navigating okay so you're holding that That, exactly and then the other thing that i'm paying attention to is them not just as an individual themselves but in context of the system they're in Mm -hmm. which also shapes how they show up how they're seen Mm -hmm. what of them feels safe to show up and be seen Mm -hmm. um and um, when, especially when they're working with aspects that touch organizational culture, which is really anything they do as a leader. Like they, they wake up on the wrong side of the bed in the morning and they come storming the organization and they don't make eye contact and beeline for their office. And everyone's like, oh my God, he hates me, you know, or she hates me. <laughs> the assumptions that get made as a sheer consequence of the visibility of a leader hmm. um, is, is challenging. In fact, I was talking to a, a woman who's stepping into a CEO role um, next week, yesterday, and I said one of the consequences of you choosing to take this job on is your visibility. And she's like, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm like, well, that's because a lot of people don't have, you know, you take out, you, you escalate in roles and systems, and, um, and there's all of this other stuff that comes with it mm-hmm. around identity, new aspects of identity, what gets projected on you that you suddenly have to navigate. And so for her, we were talking about, um, one, how does she just want to even approach her first 60, 90 days Mm -hmm. with a level of thoughtfulness, um, moving between, uh, dance floor and balcony, you know, being in and amongst all the things that you're doing and then being able to climb up to the balcony and look down on it Mm -hmm. and have some reflective practice around that and and some thoughtfulness Mm -hmm. and then re-engaging again. topic emerging future actually because it's always emerging <laughs> um but there's something about a recognition it's like gravity always happens but you still have to name it right so um yes. to be con- to be aware of it and so that's interesting to me yeah and i think that um that's that's similar to how i think about it it's the emerging future is happening mm-hmm. um and we have the tendency to like like jump to conclusions on how we're gonna like fix all of the the mess that we're in right yes. now yes but it's it's more of a posturing of like listening yes to what's emerging and trying to be rooted in presentness mm-hmm. so that we can name and participate in yes not sort of be like the solution and part of that consciousness is not unconsciously perpetuating too so i think there's a great line from a poem called polaroids by charles wright who says something like, those without stories are doomed to repeat them. And that goes back to a, fa- uh, a young quote that I really love, which is, um, that which stays in the unconscious comes back to us as fate. Hmm. And so there's this, I think, real requisite around um, uh, respecting the past, because I think that's actually something that America is not so great at. 
you know, we're, we're so about the frontier mm-hmm. that we forget that the past has deep, deep, deep roots, patterns, wounds, mm-hmm. etc. But nor do we want to um, cast all our uh, energy back there. I think about Michael Mead, who talks at some point about people who don't turn and face death, risk sort of breach death. You know, there's breach birth where the baby doesn't properly turn, mm-hmm. but there's breach death. And I wonder if there's a similar concept that's applicable to the future of, of either turn too far into the past mm-hmm. and constantly reliving that or, um, or, or being so far in the future that, um, that you're trying to create it, but sort of an imagined toy land where all your wishes will be fulfilled, which mm-hmm. is sometimes a relationship I think that people have to artificial intelligence, like, oh, mm-hmm. our robo-god will come save us all. Um, and having worked a little bit with the singularity community years ago, and to be very fair, I think that the singularity community has significantly involved um, in some ways. Um, but the certainly, there, certainly early incarnations of, you know, this is inevitable and it will be good for humanity, inherently good, mm-hmm. um, held a certain naivety, which was interesting to me because it echoed um, this, a certain kind of flavor of psychology um, that, that I would say was lightly rep- reminiscent of, of evangelical, um, despite the profession of being deeply atheistic. So my nascent and unformed conclusion out of that is that our patterns are deep. So mm-hmm. our, including our ways of relating to constructs that are larger than ourselves, mm-hmm. whether it's God or whether it's artificial intelligence or whether it's the future itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what do we do um, in a culture where we're constantly... And my, my thoughts on this is that we're, we're not looking at the past at all mm-hmm. and enough. Yeah. We're not looking at it enough, I should say to change the story of the past. So that's the unconscious coming back into play. And we, but we're certainly not in the present. Mm -hmm. We're, we're future minded. We're always future. And, and we're, so we're never rooted in what's like the capital R reality Mm -hmm. of, of what's happening and present to what's needed. Yeah. And, um, it's handy to have such a quotable husband. Um, (laughs) But David would say that, that real maturity is the ability to occupy all three tenses at once, past, mm. present, and future. And I've thought a lot about that. And, um, and what that, does that mean in terms of what is our, not just our individually, but um, the ability of a leader mm-hmm. to engage with all of those three tenses? Mm-hmm. So if you're a new leader walking into an organization... What is it to really understand that you are still accountable, not only for the successes and the mistakes of the past, you have to live with the inherited. You can't say, this is not my mess. I wasn't here when that was created. Mm. You know, like the new Uber CEO doesn't get to not live with the reputational consequences of the previous Uber CEO. And yet they have to be attuned to what the culture is at the moment Mm -hmm. and work with it and frankly love it enough to change it. Right. Because you can't, you also can't go in. Mm-hmm. You just can't go in and change something from a place of hatred. It's it's not going to yield a sustainable, thoughtful, imaginative result. So what you're saying is you have to change it from a place of love. Fundamentally, I believe that. Hmm. Yeah, and it matters like what you love, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think about Wikimedia. And getting the, that 
um, you have to love in order to work with and, and possibly move. Um, I think often about change is nudging. You know, we want to do these whole scale, large scale transformations. What you're doing is nudging into either existing currents or eddies. Um, mm. Like the whole scale blanket thing is actually really quite difficult in a large scale change perspective, especially in really complex systems. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of my thinking in the realm of complexity has been influenced by a woman named Jennifer Garvey Berger mm. and her firm her. called Cultivating Leadership. They're fantastic. Mm. She has a great book. Um, she's got a few great books. Simple Habits for Complex Times is one of them. Um, but when I um, started working for Wikimedia um, and in the, in the role of uh, people and, and culture, mm-hmm. chief talent and culture officer was the title which cracked me up because i was like what does this mean who came up with that i know it was my predecessor had it okay and i was like i doesn't i don't i thought about that the traditional title is chro uh chief human resources officer I see. um but the scope of the role was larger than um a, than a traditionally conceptualized hr role it was much more of a strategic partner as mm-hmm. well as um building a fundamentally developmentally based rather than compliance based organization. And so I felt like that was a uh, core philosophical difference that I walked in with, um, as well as the hilarity of my having absolutely no HR background. (laughs) So I um, have enormous thanks to um, Sue Gardner, who was the executive director at the time for trusting one, my capacity to learn and hire the right people around me and two. um, because I, in some sense, came from outside the industry to really look at practices and um, and the sort of agency of HR with a different lens, respecting what was there um, and the and the way it was conceived by other people in the organization and the way that that a functioning HR, um, especially a highly functioning HR organization, meets some of the most fundamental safety and security needs of an organization: mm. payroll, healthcare, um, leave immigration, et cetera. And those need to be really tight um, so that you can build on top of that foundational infrastructure layer and really think about development, rewards and recognition, mm-hmm. um, other the other structures. So I was always thinking about my role. And when I work with leaders, this is a conversation I engage them in around what I call working the mythic and the mundane at the same time. Ooh, talk about that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the layer of knowing that you need to work with values and stories and um, and that change in organization is as much about amplifying small effects, raising them into the level of organizational story and values, and, and things get, get perpetuated because people are still tribal and still watching what one another is doing and hearing um, what that group did over there, mm-hmm. or this person got a promotion because of this, or um, which is more common in organizations, what organizations tolerate mm-hmm. usually, especially in the realm of bad behavior that sends as many signals as what they espouse. And, um, and then there's all the mundane things which need to be paid as much attention to. So a lot of leadership um, and the practices of leadership and the, are similar to, the, I think, what you would say is some of the practices of, of paying attention to the emerging future is, which is um, in some sense all about it and starts with your attention. So I'm um, the honing of attention and where that's placed um, almost as a, as a devotional um, component to a life, 
is, is an interesting one. It doesn't have to be devotional. I use that language part because I was trained in the Buddhist tradition mm-hmm. and, um, and very much um, was, um, I often joke that I was on my way to becoming a, a monk when I became an executive instead. Well, I read that on your yeah. website. You were on your way <laughs> to becoming a monk and you became an executive instead. I have to stop you right there because I have to hear that story. Yeah. (laughs) You know, what's funny is, um, it's one of those interesting choiceless choices where the, the question I was in with my spiritual teacher as I was in practice and and thinking about a commitment on our vacation, um, around spiritual life was realizing that what mattered to me was the practice ground and the, and impact. And so, um, this was never something I said out loud when I was at Wikimedia, but I held it with the sort of, um, it allowed, it allowed a sort of painful earnestness to be carried into my role about understanding that attention to people and community was like attention to Sangha and it was attention to the supporting, um, of a thriving Sangha. And, um, and that can you explain Sangha? I'm not Sangha, familiar. um, is the Buddhist term for humanity human community community Um, and community is fundamentally what wikimedia is based on so it's part technology part platform part movement part community so the whole mission um technology uh, community i never remember what comes out of my mouth this is one of the upsides (laughs) of things big well i wanted to just clarify too you keep on saying wikimedia right and and everyone's familiar with wikipedia exactly And, and that's on purpose okay so wikimedia is the company, the organization that runs Wikipedia and all of its sister projects. Okay. So Wikipedia is joined by um, WikiNews, WikiSource, WikiData, Wiki. Um, uh, there's there's so many of them. Wiki Education, and um, Wikimedia is the project, or in some sense, product. If you're looking at technology through a slightly more traditional lens, that's the most well known, and. Um, the organization chose not to, at an earlier point in its life, not to be so explicit about the branding because it really wanted the platform to stand on its own, wanted Wikipedia to stand on its own. But the ethos behind Wikipedia, which is the whole notion of uh, making the sum total of human knowledge available to everyone from anywhere for free, which is deeply rooted in open source um, free knowledge ethos that we need Mm -hmm. a thriving public domain, and for me, that access to knowledge is a prerequisite for social change. That was the, you know, ch- daisy chaining the values down into the personal. Um, and if you think about the Buddhist values of freedom, that very much intrinsically tied together for me. And so it was one of the reasons that um, it, it looked like a choice, but it actually wasn't because I just chose Wikimedia as my practice ground. And I had some great conversations with my spiritual teacher about about that choice and the choice to do it consciously and thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. And I've never thought that um, holding spiritual path was talking about spirituality so much as it was about um, uh, creating space. But invisible work, which is a lot of what I think I do, is really difficult to see because it's invisible. It's like um, I was a huge astronomy buff as a kid uh, and uh, went to space camp and all that. And space thought camp. I'd be, I, I remember so space good. camp. I always wanted to go. I never got to it go. It was fantastic. I, Wasn't I went there even camp. a movie called Space there was Camp? A, I, back <laughs> in the 80s. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It was fantastic. Um, but I wanted to go to space. I still mm-hmm. want to go to space. 
whatever becomes affordable, I am on that ship. Yeah. Um, but there's this lovely notion of, um, of uh, dark matter, you know, which was actually um, the, the whole notion, and I have to, need to remember the name of the scientist, um, because it was a woman who was really putting forward a lot of the original thinking around dark matter. And I think like culture, it's not visible. You can't figure out, you can only tell it's there by its effect on other things. And if you tried to understand the universe without recognizing the presence of dark matter, your entire conceptualization would be totally skewed. Um, but you can't see it. And so mm -hmm. it's easy to ignore because we're so, as physical beings and still animal beings, we are so deeply oriented to what we can touch and see and smell mm -hmm. because that's what our survival is rooted in. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. So mm. when you're working with something um, like culture and leadership, the need to work the mythic and the mundane, the tangible and the intangible, um, to be an outsider at the same time as being, like I talk about drinking the Kool-Aid and also not drinking the Kool-Aid. Like if you're um, uh, accountable on some level for culture, although not in charge of, and certainly not, um, not the driver of, because I think anyone who comes in thinks they're going to change a culture. It's like, I'm going to change American culture as a single entity is kind of delusional. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of delusion, uh, in this world. One of my favorite, this is hilarious. I'm quoting myself. One of my favorite Do self it. quotes, <laughs> um, is that you can either face yourself unblinking or you can ramp up your level of delusion to cope. And I actually have a fair amount of compassion for people to drive up their level of delusion. I'm gonna, I don't even know who that is. Um, so you can either face yourself unblinking or you can ramp up your level of delusion to cope. And I sometimes Would have Would you a, mind saying that a little bit more slowly? Yes. You can face yourself or your circumstances unblinking, you know, or you can ramp up your level of delusion to cope. Mm. And I used to have a lot more patience with people who ramped up their level of delusion to cope because I had a lot more compassion for it. I have to say in this last year of political upheaval that my patience is a little thinner than it was. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's an interesting thing. Um, well, it, it it's, seems like the, the dark matter mm -hmm. um, or the absence of recognizing it has come much closer to the surface. Mm-hmm. So, um, there isn't the, the delusion isn't, um, it's, it's not something that is acceptable when it, when you can, we can feel and touch the dark matter. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that's one of the consequences of this election is, is, uh -huh. is that's exactly what I was having in my mind when I was saying that. Yeah. Certain, um, certain thoughts that we, certain opinions that we held as reality, about who we are as a country mm -hmm. collectively um, and what conversations we should be having. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're partly in it, partly out of it. I think about Rumi's, you know, don't go back to sleep and this constant struggle that we're all in as individuals to wake up, be aware, and then mm -hmm. we fall back asleep and then we wake up again. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about leadership and the need for a thoughtfulness around attention, mm -hmm. um, that feels very inextricably linked Mm -hmm. And you you have a background too uh, in education and psychology, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So I'm I'm sure that undergirds like all of your your work and it your does. conversation. It does. Um, 
Yeah, I've I've done a little bit of um, leadership training with mm-hmm. Pathwise Leadership. I don't know if you don't know Pathwise. They're they're in the the guys who started our Bainbridge. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, and they work with executives uh-huh. mostly in in this region, um, but they they combine psychology and, and philosophy together. And when I came into that program, I was very much on the um, the achievement bus. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very societally supported, so you're not the only one. In fact, society and our culture tries to shove you onto that bus. Totally. And, I mean, well, it is the culture that we live in, right? Yep. It's, it's, and then... In fact, here's the right bus, and if you get into the school, then that will take you to the next right bus. Or this job. Totally. Mm-hmm. We're, I mean, we're having a conversation at our um, kids' school about... They go to a Waldorf school, mm-hmm. and... Yes. Um, it's it's really a different frame, right? Mm-hmm. A, a different way of approaching education for the whole child, and there's still this um, pull to um, communicate externally to appease the achievement culture. Yes, and and to um, validate where we sit within relationship to that, and yeah. it's sort of a recruitment tool these kids do go to good schools like that yeah it's almost like wait a second you're you're you're, this is we're talking about a different way yes like an alternative way not like um a chunk of time and then you return to yes yeah so yeah and um what of achievement culture everything has a light side and a shadow side right though so I've seen people bypass the whole achievement culture thing and put it into shadow hmm. and then have to go back and reclaim some of it at later periods in life. So that's an interesting dynamic as well. Hmm. Um, and I think the main, you know, I think about my little niece a lot now. She's only four months old. But um, I, I don't want her to... There's some part of it that's, that's important for the sustaining of one's own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some part of letting it go. I think I, I like the old, the quote, you know, you have to become somebody to become nobody. Mm-hmm. So there's a piece of the achievement culture that actually can support strong ego, mm-hmm. um, in the journey towards letting it go. The problem is when it gets so tightly wrapped up around that ego yeah. and the ego conflates the achievement with itself, mm-hmm. that, that, that stuckness actually really starts to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, going to, to bypassing the ego without some achievement leads to other sorts of wobbly bits. Right, because you need the ego to get stuff done, right? Yeah, you do. Right. Yeah. So that's that, that's the, the light side of it. Mm. It, it helps you um, have the courage yeah. to take a risk, to try something. And you also need it, um, like I work with activists, for example, they need to tell their stories. Mm. They need to be able to communicate what they're doing. They need to... Uh, um, and I see some of them fall into the, but it's not about me. It's about the work and the community. Yes, that's true. I love that they're trying to support their community. Mm-hmm. I love that they're trying to create change where it matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that they can create an invitational doorway into that space for other people is the um, is through the personal. Mm-hmm. And so having enough capacity to hold that duality. Mm-hmm. So that they can effectively and authentically 
engage and show is such an important capacity for them to develop. That non-dual thinking is mm-hmm. so huge. Mm-hmm. It's so huge for um, in- engagement in a, in, a, in a wider frame. Mm-hmm. Um, one example like of our, I was telling you about our restoration work in yes. Seattle. Um, and so the forest is, is uh, close within proximity to where we live, uh-huh. right? And there was criticism from people who didn't want this project to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a community space, right? So everybody voices their opinion, and some people just have different opinions about what this should be, or even if humans should be interacting with the space. But then the criticism comes in where they point to the um, proximity with our house to the forest as um, a reason for us we're it, they're saying we're doing it for selfish reasons well, of course you're right? invested right but it's like wait if you remove that proximity then where's the relation the personal yeah. relationship yeah. with with the space and of course there's going to be of course there is if if there's not then yes. i don't i lose the that whole motivation to actually participate they lose the distinction and i think we live in an era where a lot of distinctions are lost mm-hmm. of uh between the your relationship to it and your um and your justification for it or your your soul motivation for it right mm-hmm. um is this like the uh there's a um there's an interesting dichotomy here um around so one of the so in the wikimedia world the sort of general equivalent is that you have to try to write in a completely neutral way because it's encyclopedia Mm. And that's expected. And you want to um, draw information and from conflicting sources. Um, there's always a perspective, though. So this whole notion of being completely neutral is itself a delusional um, uh, sensibility. In some right. Sense, right. Because the whole reason that you would choose topics to write about, like I'm not going to go write, I can be completely neutral about the roofing style in the house next door, and I can choose to write about that, but I have no motivation to do it. I'm much more likely to write about a psychological theory that that I think it needs to be better explained on Wikimedia hmm. on Wikipedia. Um, so, in some sense, um, there's something really important about the capacity to acknowledge both the personal and the impersonal at mm-hmm. the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to say this. I was in the middle of a Doris and. Um, I noticed a real difference in people who would relate to me as though I were either completely not okay or completely okay. Mm. And that the people that I found that I could just be with, I could hang with the most, were the people who could see that I was simultaneously okay, mm. like meta-okay, um, and also not okay. And so it's almost like the more complexity of the surface area that you have, the more ability I think you have to meet this past, present, future, emerging future that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and to do it from a, a really grounded place, otherwise you could just spin around in your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the term liminal space. Oh, I love that term. Liminal is one of my favorite words. Is it? Uh-huh. Yeah. So I do my work under Lyman. Lyman. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what I named my company. So mm-hmm. it's root word. What, Lyman means threshold, yes. right? Yes. Liminal space is the um, is when past, present, and future come into one moment of yeah. clarity, right? Yeah. And 
I, I feel like that's what we're yeah we're we're aiming for yeah in our moments so that we can have that level of clarity and yeah. then actually know I mean you're holding you're holding it all yes in that moment mm-hmm. and and then you're clear on what you, what needs to happen next mm-hmm. and it takes a certain like I think that the capacity for ambiguity mm-hmm. helps one to develop in the midst of that liminal space an exquisite sense of timing and without that capacity for ambiguity you don't get to um, dance and develop mm-hmm. that sense of that clarity because you don't have enough ability to be in the uncomfortableness of it to know when it when it crystallizes mm-hmm. at either a micro or macro scale yeah comfort and conven- comfort and convenience are yeah. are um, held in so highly they're so highly valued in our culture yeah um, and because it's great to be curled up in the corner of a, a couch and, and be settled in with a cup of tea mm-hmm. and a book of fiction and be like, you know, I'm not going to deal with that thing over there. So how do we, um, how do we also get that? Um, I've got a friend named Randy Benson. He lives in this area, actually. He's fantastic. He wrote a book called Quest, and it was all about the uh, about the human propensity to quest and the, the impact of that on our evolution. And um, part of what I loved about him was that he said that in the story tales, because he's a mythologist, in all the old story tales, um, the refusal to answer the call to adventure, to overweigh the comfort side, um, resulted in the stories of a life of constant adaptation to diminishment. And exactly, I had that expression on my face too. And it just struck me. Like we were having this conversation. We were both at a consulting engagement in the middle of Nebraska. And that um, that just hit me. I'm like, mm. I am not doing that. <laughs> no. Because we have the choice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is it. And then we need to reintegrate a home base. So the other challenge you ran into is the quest for the Holy Grail was never about the Holy Grail. It was to heal the wasteland. So a mm. lot of the places in the mythic journey that people fail is they love the journey part and they can't integrate the return. Mm. So Lewis and Clark, when they went out and were doing all that exploratory work, trying to come back into society and reintegrate, I can't remember. I think one of them committed suicide. There's a real challenge mm-hmm. around reintegration. And what is it, as Joseph Campbell would say, to make a life like one successive adventure after another hmm. and to repeatedly step into the ambiguity with, with less innocence each time that you need to refine again every time you go out. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. So it's not you're on this hamster wheel mm-hmm. of adventure. Because mm-hmm. I feel like in my younger years, that's where I was. It was just like, one, like what can I do? I want to do everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you end up... Um, exhausted and hurt yes exactly you do end up exhausted and hurt you too because you get battered it's not a path of it's not called a path of trials for no reason (laughs) no it's not it wouldn't be if it were a daisy strewn path where you could see the end yeah that's not an adventure Mm -hmm. (laughs) but how exciting though that we all have that yeah we do it's available to everyone Mm -hmm. we but we need the courage to step into it yeah that's where community helps too community does help i'm a big believer i think it was carolyn mice that said we evolve at the rate of the tribe that we're plugged into hmm. and i've always loved well, that that's quote. interesting yeah yeah who are you hanging out with yeah 
mm-hmm. who you hang out with. Man, I totally, I judge people by who they hang out with. I'm, I'm very judgy on that Yeah, level. yeah I can tell you judge people a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think the difference is, because people tell me, they're like, you seem so non-judgmental. I'm like, I'm so judgy. I just don't believe all the things I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's smart. Because <laughs> that would be bad. Right. <sighs> yeah. That's well, good. I was taught that partly through the Zen tradition and partly because I have a thyroid disease. <laughs> and, um, and what happens when your thyroid is overproducing adrenaline is that it makes you paranoid and, and, um, and uh, unfun. And, um, and I've noticed I'll wake up and I'll be like, huh, I'll have a thought. And I'm like, I don't actually think I believe that thought. And I'm like, oh, the, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I'm constantly watching, um, sort of like my body and my thoughts to, mm. to monitor this almost over time. And so it's really taught me fundamentally that how much I make up, like the difference between a good day and a bad day sometimes is, um, is just, you know, whether I remember to take my meds or not, but I'll make up whole stories about it. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes just like how my adrenaline's working. That's really interesting. I mean, to think about observing your own thoughts. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to do yeah. because it it's it's tied to our physical body. It so is. And I'm it was one of those things I was kind of bizarrely grateful for. I was really grateful that I um had meditation experience from when I was young because the I got really clear the line between sanity and insanity is very, very slim. It's a thin mm-hmm. um bright um, it's a thin bright line and I was really, I was surprised by that. And so the ability to watch what I was thinking was everything and nothing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Cause I was still in the physicality of my experience, um, mm-hmm. and the way that my body would drive, drive thinking. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, not having to believe the things I was thinking was great. I'm like, okay, that's, I'm just going to ride this one out. When you were young, where did you grow up? Santa Maria, California. Okay. It's a little town in the Central Valley. Um, my, I'm an immigrant, so part of my identity is deeply based on, um, on being an outsider trying to learn how to move within a particular culture and not knowing how or where I fit in. So I had the experience of moving schools, and, and, um, and my parents are amazing and courageous. They literally came with 50 bucks in their pockets to the United States and, and uh, settled first in New York, um, which is a hard city, and they came from the Philippines, so you can imagine their first winter, wow. and uh, and then eventually settled in California, where they both got um, practices and jobs in the same place. And so, small town uh, California girl on a <laughs> on a level. But you, but from a young age, you had that sort of um, I'm participating, but I'm also observing. Yeah, I think that growing up bicultural. The gift of that is that you can never assume that one version of reality is the right one. <laughs> mm. So I'm like, I'm living in this one, and I'm going to school here, and my friends have parents that think like this, and I'm in a culture that thinks like this, mm-hmm. but my parents think, you know, the home culture is like this. Mm-hmm. And so, um, um, and then I was also an avid reader, so science fiction, fantasy, mm-hmm. um, uh, myths that my parents used to leave me in the library after school. It was like, that was my babysitter which is great. And, uh, and so I was always in other worlds too. I'm like, these mm-hmm. have different cultures. And so I think that was an early gift from s- how circumstances, um, uh, co-create to form right, a particular path, being. The, the path was already sort of set for, yeah. 
your work now. Yeah. And then did you stay in California for school? I did. I went to Scripps College in Southern California. Okay. I flunked out of college and then finished my degree at the University of San that. Francisco. No one ever does. It's hilarious. I like to tell people this partly because it's easy to assume that somebody that looks like me with some of the accomplishments I've had in the world mm-hmm. um, went through a particular path. And I think it's deeply reassuring, particularly for entrepreneurs or people who have lost their way on occasion, just to know that that the other sides of particular journeys can be totally unimaginable from the place I was, mm-hmm. you know, at 16, 17, 19. People are doing the work that they're doing and accomplishing the things that they're doing because of mm-hmm. these thresholds of yes. suffering and yeah. loss or confusion or um, when something was removed. Yes. Yeah. And when you fundamentally don't know, like my capacity for failure and not knowing were really born in those dark places and, and where they led, where the search led me to. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I had an experience a few years back where all these things kind of piled up. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like the dark night mm-hmm. of the soul mm-hmm. for not only me, but for our family. Yeah. And it, there was like that, for having that like achievement kind of uh, adventurous spirit, all of that went like into the air, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there was there was like nothing to grasp onto, and, yeah. and it was like it wasn't hitting rock bottom. I wanted to hit rock yeah. bottom, like I wanted to like, <laughs> yeah. push off of the rocks. A, then something. I'd have to move something around, right? <laughs> exactly. But there was just kind of nothing material yeah. there to grab yeah. onto, and it was probably the closest. I've ever been to yeah. being depressed, yeah. you know, like just trying to figure out the next step and not being able to, um, I can't see, not being able to see yeah, okay. and then having conversations with people who are like, well, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a, it's so, um, the irony of course is that it's such a tactical question and you're so desperately looking for solidity, and yet the path is mythic and not tactical. Oh, it's the worst. It's the worst. I know. And why? Can't, and I love that. Why can't you just, you know? Or yeah. they'll look at the externalities. You've got this and this, and that's not anchoring sufficiently. Anchoring. My favorite um, image was two. One is Rainer Maria Rilke's, who's got a great. This is what got me onto poetry. A mentor of mine, Bob Anderson, left a poem on my answering machine, and it was the one um, when I was in a similar space, and it was the one that said. Um, I'm going to mangle the lines, but I am not yet wise in my grief, so this great darkness makes me small. I am so far in that there's no beginning, and everything um, is close to my face, and everything close to my face is stone. I think I've got those lines reversed, but it's such a powerful articulation. I literally picked up the phone. I'm like, who is this guy? Who wrote who this? Who wrote this? Yeah. Um, and the other one is from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Very familiar. Yes. What's the line? It's the it's the it's actually the <laughs> the third Grail trial. So you know he's got the the picture in the journal of uh-huh. the knight crossing the chasm, and it's the leap of faith, and that's uh-huh. what it feels like. You have you, there's nothing down there. It looks like an abyss, and you just have to walk and trust that the ground will build itself beneath I your feet. I don't want to. I know. Well, no, I don't want scary. to step. Yeah. And I'm afraid of heights. Yeah. <laughs> Because I'm sane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's your line yeah. of sane and insane. Yeah. And it's right there. Yeah. But that's yeah. where things come alive, and that's where the path is revealed. And that's where you have to go. Yeah. Because mm. so, then, so good. 
if you turn back from that, right? If he turned away at any of those trials, it's that life of constant adaptation diminishment. Hmm. Um, can you talk about the um, uh, Wikipedia? One of the things that I wanted to hear from you about that organization, because you're building culture. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm building on top of existing cultural with, pieces. With reforming it mm-hmm. with um, volunteers. Yes. So, and, I, and, I, and I'm really curious about that aspect of yeah. volunteers who not, they're not only just like in a, in a place either, right? So no, that, there are 100,000 active editor volunteers. 100,000. At least. That was then too. You know, I've been out of that system for a couple of years now. Yeah. Um, uh, although I still engage because I'm... Um, I'm planning to facilitate for Wikimania, which is in South Africa. It's our gathering oh, of wow. activists and um, editors that that meets once a year. So it's a fantastic and brilliant and wonderful gathering. So there's there's the gathering uh-huh. for where people have the opportunity who are working on the site. How many visitors does the site have, or do you remember? Um, it used to get, and the number has gone up since then, 500 million a month, so half a billion. Holy cow! Users a month, and so you think about impact also. It's small surface area to impact. So where you have organizations like in the other top five, like Google or Facebook, there are massive organizations. Right. When I joined the Wikimedia Foundation, we had like 50 or 60 employees. And when I left, it was closer to 200. So if you mm. think about scale of impact users um, that were accessing it in, in, at the time, again, which is the number is greater now in 290 different languages. So each with their own governance structure. So the sheer complexity uh, that an average employee at the Wikimedia Foundation deals with mm-hmm. is enormously outsized to, say, traditional organizations, which means a really different way of thinking about leadership mm-hmm. and a lot more about influence, even though you still have to be a good manager, you know, and you have direct reports and you have to set goals and you have to align them to OKRs, you still, that's the mundane stuff, you still have to do a lot by influence because there's this enormous community, not just of editors, but of users and also the communities that are intangibly associated, like designers, for example, yeah. who are, are um, aesthetic around technology and technology websites is determined by all the other sites we're viewing, and in some sense driven by Apple. So they've driven a lot of our modern aesthetic mm-hmm. around what we expect from technology. Mm-hmm. Um, where was I going with that? Just this, <laughs> going back to the sheer complexity of the system. Right. And so when you're, when you're helping shape culture, you're, mm-hmm. you're dealing with the, the people who are actually there, mm-hmm. but then you have the hundred thousand mm-hmm. or more volu- volunteers. Yes. That's part of the culture too, yes, because they, they actually do the work. They are. And they really interact with the staff and I actually, okay. they still interact with me. So they still, <laughs> some of them still call me. Um, one of the, early interesting lessons to learn as an executive there that was that I was accessible and accountable to people I didn't even know. So I would get questions about my compensation structure from a volunteer in China who was like 16 years old and wanted to understand why the salaries were so high in San Francisco when uh-huh. he could do it for like 10 bucks or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. You know? So it was hilarious. <laughs> I once had a volunteer take down my jobs page because he felt like the security protocol on the jobs page did not meet his own standards of for privacy, his own standards, his own standards. Um, <laughs> and, and to be fair, they were somewhat rooted in community standards because Wikimedia takes personal privacy very seriously. And, and our jobs page was a portal to, um, 
to the recruiting software that we were using at the time. But I had to find, I had to get on IRC. I had to find him under a different name and a different gender. Um, and then I had to have a conversation with him to understand why he'd taken the page down. And this is one of the sweet stories. It was like in my first month there. And he's like 14. Now he's older. Now he's in his 20s. But at the time, he's a teenager. And uh, he might have been a little older than 14, but young. And uh, he actually helped me rebuild the jobs page. And then he took accountability for maintaining it. And so I'd get, he would assign me tasks on occasion. This is a volunteer kid from, from I don't even know where he lives, right? Uh-huh. Um, who would assign me tasks of like, you need, you haven't updated this in this many days. Like, I think you should update the staff page. And I'd be like, (laughs) that was on my to-do list. It wasn't my highest priority because it's got his priorities, right? (laughs) But these are the kinds of things to manage. And whether Mm -hmm. it was Jeff in the legal department at the time, who's our general counsel needing to respond to a, to a, um, to a legal question by somebody in, I don't know, South Africa, Mm -hmm. you know, about the relevance of something or, or dealing with the, Paris, uh, the head of the Paris chapter being temporarily incarcerated for a page on the French Wikipedia, you know, like <laughs> the scale of issues that we had to deal with was fascinating. Hmm. We dealt with everything from human trafficking to um, child pornography. Whoa. You know, that was a, a challenging one um, to, uh, to child grooming on the Internet. You know, so there was a case. These are real issues. Yeah, those are, and when you have mm-hmm. a site that big, yeah. you know, and we had a great community um of people who also helped deal with this and we had a community department um but for a, a period of time i was the ultimate escalation point in emergency at wikimedia.org oh wow <laughs> so, so that was fun there's something about the um the the structure uh-huh. of the wiki uh-huh. um that's really fascinating to me and like you because you're having all of these volunteers, you know, put in the work and yeah. really they're doing it because they're intrinsically motivated. Right? They are. And, and that's why it's a nonprofit. Okay. So if you think about the structure of it, we are deeply committed to not profiting um, in some sense on the altruism of other people. I don't think it would work if it were a for-profit organization that uh-huh. also sold advertising revenue. I see. Well, I was trying to, um, in my mind, like compare it to other businesses because I, there's so much speak about like, um, purpose alignment. Yes. You know, like you as a person and here, here you are, find your purpose and then align it with the company that shares your purpose and values. Mm -hmm. What do you think about all that? Um, we're mission driven. So it's got a lot of complexity to it. Not a surprise, but, um, (laughs) organizations that are fundamentally mission driven, that get employees that are mission-driven, have employees that are a lot more invested in the organization, which also means that they, there's a higher sensitivity to perceived organizational betrayal because they've got a higher degree of investment in the system. That's interesting, mm-hmm. and that's something to very be very, very conscious of and work along with your organizational values because organizations engage in what I sometimes call unintentional organizational hypocrisy just by virtue of scaling. So it's really hard to maintain a value around transparency in the same exact way that you did when the organization was five people versus when it was 20 versus when it's 2,000, which doesn't mean that the value becomes less relevant, but the renegotiation of the organization in relation to the value Mm -hmm. and its practices has to be constantly um, looked at as it scales and grows Um, and as new leadership comes in and practices change, et cetera. So um, where you have a values-based company, 
because the investment of employees in that company is different. It's much more personal mm -hmm. than it otherwise is. There are enormous upsides with that, and there are challenges with that. When you think about the emerging future, mm -hmm. when you think about what's needed in this time, mm -hmm. um, what are the things related to you and your work that come to the surface? It's kind of like the through lines for us. What are you noticing? Where's your attention? Um, it's about supporting people in being able for the complexity they face. If I were going to break it down into something, it would be that. And, um, and being able for is a great phrase that I picked up from David. I used to talk about building the capacity um, to just be with it. I think about it in terms partly of like surface area. Mm -hmm. like, like if your surface area is this big, there's a lot less than you can hold than if it's this big both internally and externally. Um, and that fluctuates, right? Depending on what's going on in your life, life mm -hmm. changes, illness, um, life events, but to the degree that your center of gravity can be fairly um, expansive mm -hmm. um, so that you can face a lot, which means also drawing other people's sense-making into your own because mm -hmm. we don't make sense as singular beings. We make sense also on the integration of the other voices that we have in our lives, going back to that whole tribal aspect. So... Um, my own commitment is around helping leaders be able to face. And sometimes that means emotional and psychological resourcing. Sometimes that means skill development. Sometimes that means access to thoughts and concepts that have them hold and take perspective in a different way. Sometimes that's um, the robust sort of daily practices of leadership um, and where you place your time and attention that are necessary. Um, but I would say that that's the gist of it, because as you said earlier, um, that whole through line around past, present, and future requires capacity. And we, we can't, when we're in our smallest selves, it's always going to be, um, in some sense, past-facing, whether that's you're stuck in the past or you can only see the future from your smallest, younger, youngest self youngerest mm -hmm. self so what brings you hope um i still so there's two things engagement and technology like people engaging differently and at scale like we've got more women running for office than we ever have that gets me really excited mm -hmm. um and i also think that um what what is and part of the reason that i love wikipedia is seeing the both the promise and the peril of technology, but the promise of it in be able, being able to create these broader networks and platforms for different kinds of dialogue and conversation mm -hmm. um, and also different mechanisms so that you can get a system um, that is evolving enough to hold the complexity of our human interactions. Mm. So, um, uh, so, for instance, I was talking to a friend of mine in sustainable fashion and using blockchain to be able to validate supply chain effectiveness in a way because it's all about a trust-based system that wasn't available for. That's really interesting to me when you've got modern technology being able to be married to existing um, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So before, you couldn't validate whether a cotton war is organic because it's not like one giant organic 
cotton cooperative. It's like, um, you know, 10,000 farmers in Pakistan with small hectares of land because there's a legal system in place that keeps you from, from, um, uh, from larger massing of mm -hmm. land. And I can't remember, is it Pakistan? But when you've got these deep societal legal structures, infrastructures for products married to some of this interesting um, technology that can really um, support the engagement at that level of complexity, mm -hmm. then I get really hopeful. Hmm. There's a, um, an, almost an overused term, mm -hmm. digital transformation. Yes. It's <laughs> very trendy. Right? Yes, yes. And, and everyone's using it. Yes. And it's... Uh, uh, and I think it's it's there. It's being used lightly too, uh -huh. you know. Um, faster internet—that's digital transformation. I don't know uh, if that's totally, <laughs> you know. But it's it's a proxy for it, right? And um, and I'm I'm just curious what you think in terms of um, that particular term, digital transformation. I think it, it needs to be married to human transformation because I think our propensity to cause harm with technology has outpaced our ability to take responsibility for it, and particularly take collective responsibility for it. So that's one component. The other component that I think is really relevant here is the need for us as human beings to have deep meaning-making capacity and intersectionality as, as skill sets, um, which interesting. I, I think you're a perfect example of this, bringing both all of these thoughts and your background as a musician and your interest in environmental mm -hmm. um, issues um and, and reforestation and sustainability like that kind of intersectionality and meaning making is going to make the difference because we do have to think about technological unemployment you know um which began as it began a while ago i was watching a tv show that had you know it was set in the 50s and they had the elevator operator go and it's like when elevators became automated so you didn't have to have the person that was supporting it mm -hmm. stopping and going at each floor that's a form of technological unemployment because we have more of that, the more fluid, flexible, and we have more access to being able to be intersectional now than we used to be. Mm -hmm. um, we still have some silos between art and science and practice, but they're, they're breaking down a bit. Yeah. Nobody could have imagined this job that my parents, I was having this conversation with my mom and dad, they had no idea what kind of career my sister and I had. They're mm -hmm. both doctors. That was what you do in Chinese families, you know, mm -hmm. doctors, engineers, my aunt's a dentist, you know, those, my, we still can't explain to my grandmother what I do for a living. That's totally okay. <laughs> um, but well, that you're, redefin you're redefining work, yeah. right? And I think that's part of that con yes. conversation. Well, what does work look like? Or what if there's not paid work, uh -huh. then how do we actually support a society when there's not enough paid work. Yeah, and what does a society value as paid work? It's just still radically skewed to me. It boggles me that teachers yeah. make as little as they do. And yeah, but that's a whole different rant. We'll save for another day. Yeah, for another day. No, but that's really interesting. I mean, I'd love to stay in touch too. Um, since technology is such a huge um, factor for uh, our lives, like it's, it is, it is transforming everything. Yes. Um, and that conversation that needs to be had, um, it's an ongoing conversation, yeah. right? And uh, digital revolution, to your um, point, kind of like the emerging future, and gravity is here whether we want to, or, you know, whether we're mm -hmm. thoughtful about it or not. Mm -hmm. So how do we unpack it and understand it enough that we can participate effectively in it? Mm -hmm. um, in part, so we're not so wholly manipulated by it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and for someone who 
got a 360 degree camera for to record her wedding i think that there's definitely a curiosity in pushing the boundaries for technology so yeah for another time i'd love that but thank you you're so welcome um i really appreciate you making space especially on a day when you're going on your honeymoon thank you thank you (laughs) and congratulations again if people want to find you and um you're findable right i'm very very findable i'm very findable online yeah um i um, so LinkedIn is a great way or just my email address is gailkarenyoung at gmail.com there so that's really easy send Gail an email well we did it that was a conversation with Gail Karen Young White I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did uh, she's great I want to talk to her some more too about technology and the impacts on our culture if you want to check out the show notes they are on the web at lyman.space, L-I-M-E-N dot space. And uh, make sure you hop on to iTunes. You're probably on there right now. And subscribe either on iTunes or SoundCloud. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. We have some really great ones coming up. Um, Thanks for listening, everybody. And I will talk to you soon.